Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show classic this is of course your host brian j rowan with me on deck today xo michael snydell hello i authenticate that i'm here <laughs> comms officer bill graham <laughs> Woo! yeah <laughs> so this entire episode i am going to uh i'm just gonna like be screaming anytime i throw it to one of you con sonar <laughs> Emergency action message. We gotta run a tight ship today. <laughs> God. Um, no ballast. Anyway, we're here to do a classic review. Again, I'm here for our- all the semen. <laughs> Jesus H. Christ. Um, we're here to do a classic review. Uh, we've been doing a lot of classic reviews lately, trying to, to, to get through the backlog, and we struck upon... I guess a dual thing that we were going to do, because we did Unstoppable, and we were like, hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. You know what we should do? We should watch another Denzel film. And so we did. We did Devil in a Blue Dress, and then we were like, you know what we should do? We should do another Denzel film, but we should also get back to Tony Scott. And so here you we mean, are. You mean Hunt for Red October? Yeah. We're going to talk about Hunt for Red October, directed by John McTiernan, starring Alec Baldwin. And oh. Denzel Washington. <laughs> Dear God. Um, so the story behind that fun fact is last week, after we talked about doing Crimson Tide, the two days later, Bill Graham on Slack says, guys, when are we doing the hunt for Red October? I just bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were very confused for a second. But yes, fairly close together, two submarine movies were released, both with a uh, scarlet color in their title, both involving a submarine. But we are here to talk about Crimson Tide, directed by Tony Scott, starring Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, and a bevy of uh, of, of people who we will get into. Um, before that, I'm 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 looking for authentication. Uh, is Vigo Mortensen in this movie? I don't know. Let me. Uh, we got to open up these plastic things, crack them in half. Okay. 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 And uh, I don't have anything that can work for Foley, so Victor. you're just gonna have to trust me that I'm cracking it in half. And yes, yeah, yeah, uh, Viggo yeah. Mortensen is in this movie playing Weps. Okay, okay. I saw the right one. Authenticated. <laughs> <laughs> Insert keys. Oh boy, people are going to get tired of us. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Spend a good 15 minutes talking about Lip and Zaner Stallions. Um, <laughs> before we get into our review, which uh, as you may know if you've listened to these classic episodes before, will be totally spoiler filled. Uh, the usual stuff. First of all, we are back, clean and sober, sans Jordan Raup. Hope everyone out there enjoyed the sta- the Film Stage Show Awards, also known as the Stages, which premiered over the weekend. Um, if you haven't listened, please do not. Go check it out. We were all pretty drunk. It was a good time. 
In addition, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, email us podcast at thefilmstage.com, go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow, and uh, for as little as $1 an episode, you can get access to our Slack channel, you can <laughs> be entered to win some cool raffles, like uh, we recently had Widows and Burning available for our patrons. And, of course, you help us to produce more great content like these classic episodes that you're listening to right now. In addition, we are brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema, where every day the talented curators go out and find the best of cinema to deliver right to your device. You can watch it on a Roku TV, anything with like a smart TV. You can watch it on your phone if you're a monster, <laughs> your PC, your laptop. There's some great stuff on there. I wanted to highlight, since we... uh slightly recently talked about the other side of the wind which is still available on netflix a movie that was partially ghost directed by orson welles not like how not like how the other side of the wind was ghost directed in that he was dead this is a movie that he starred in and here is the movie take with the recent release of the long gestating post posthumous film the other side of the wind it's a good time to revisit this thriller starring a young and magnificent orson welles in part ghost directed by the man himself, Black Magic is an intoxicating tale of power, hypnosis, and revenge. So if that sounds like something you want to check out, you can go to Mubi and get a free 30-day trial by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. All right, so that's it. We can now dive into our full-on review of Crimson Tide. Again, this movie directed by the inestimable Tony Scott, starring Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, Viggo Mortensen, and James Gandolfini, again, amongst many, many other people. So who shall we begin with? Bill Graham. <laughs> start with you. Yes. You'd never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason we decided Confirmed. to do this was to force you to. Affirmative. And you finally did it. I'm I'm getting them I'm getting them all out of the way right at right at the start. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, why don't you tell us what you thought of Crimson Tide? Um. Yeah, I fucking loved it. Uh. This is this is great, guys. Uh. This is this is definitely one of those like procedure is the fun of it. Uh. Films. So. I think we we talked a, a couple of years ago about Arrival, and I really kind of keyed in on on how much that film is just about like procedure and process and things like that. Um, and I think what was there? There was a, a film a couple of maybe a decade and a half ago called Rules of Engagement. Um, I can't remember if that was like a good film or not, but it was definitely about procedure. And this film kind of slides right into that. Um, that's kind of my jam. I really love like the nitty gritty, just like give me all the fucking detail and let's talk about it and let's hash it out. Um, I like the procedure and the rules surrounding um, the military and things like that. Um, whether you think that's like, oh, hey, like military is not that great, though. Oh, OK, sure. But like the rules and procedures around it is very arcane and like there's a reason it exists 
because during like heightened times of of intense situations there needs to be a chain of command so people just don't go fucking crazy um and this film is all about that chain of command and all about like who says what and what procedures and definitely on a um on a submarine it seems to be even more heightened because every little thing you do has like a giant repercussion um so yeah this film is is right up my alley uh i don't know why the hell i haven't seen it before um there's there's a lot of movies on that list of just things that i'm just like i don't know why i haven't seen this but i haven't uh raging bull among them uh things like that where it's just like oh bill you're into sports why haven't you seen x and it's like i don't know I I wasn't shown it when I was young. I didn't have access to it while I was in college because I was fucking busy being a college person. And then now as an adult, like, uh, I got some time. And these are what these episodes are kind of built for is uh, filling in the back half of, of what I haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, this is extremely well acted. Um, I was really fucking struck by how much fun it is to, like, think and kind of theorize around how much this actually unfolded on screen. Um, I don't know if they use an actual submarine or not. I imagine that they built some kind of rig because there's some moments when the film or when the sub is diving or inclining, I guess rising would be a good uh, phrase for that. (laughs) Um, And like, you can see, everybody in the room is like tilted and they are like, Whoa, you know? Um, and I, I I dig that. Like I dig that little like feedback, that little, it's just that touch of realness where you feel like they're actually in something, you know, maybe it's not in a sub in water, but maybe it's in a rig that's like being lifted up and like tilted around. So yeah, this, this film is a lot of fun. So all right, Michael Snydell. Yeah, this is my second time seeing this in about six months. And I, I have to say the first time I, I really enjoyed it. But the second time I, I honed in on how much it really is just, uh, you know, street and book smarts and how these two people who have uh, very different interpretations of the same question, uh, how they look at things. And as Bill said, like there is a, there's a there is, uh, you know, reams of procedure that they're following in terms of uh, nuclear missile strikes and in terms of the various drills. And there's such a great sense of, like, ceremony, too, how you have to go through multiple, uh, you know, locks and there are each – or, like, people are given um, – you know, certain access codes so that everyone needs to work in concert and agree on things. And, and so it's a fascinating to have this this system that needs to work in such lockstep but doesn't really allow for human personalities. So to have uh, Denzel and, um, and Gene Hackman kind of play – those opposites is just a, it's it's really a blast to watch and it's it's especially interesting coming after our recent Tony Scott film Un- Unstoppable. I mean that it, it oddly enough I think that one may be even more um, obsessed with like the minutia and details of its train and that's not to say this isn't authentic or anything. We've already authenticated it, but um, it. it there is a there's a sense of like 
pop art in this and pacing in this that just makes this thing go. Like, especially the second time I was able to kind of figure out, you know, where everything really kind of goes belly up. And it's interesting how for the first hour, you know, you're getting – these uh, these little cracks in the armor between these two men. You have the the drill situation where he asks a question in front of um, the underlings, and and so it's just great the way that it plays with that. And then it just it's no holds barred, <laughs> multiple different mutinies from different sides, and so I think it's I was just really impressed this time of how this is able to be such a good popcorn, like such a good entertaining popcorn movie, but also to be really smart about how people don't necessarily have to be good or bad. They just have differences of an opinion. With that said, Gene Hackman is a massive prick. (laughs) (laughs) Gene Hackman in this movie is in fact a massive prick. And he is from like the word go he's one of those people who everyone's like he's just a little eccentric uh he's got his goddamn dog on the submarine like i just want to say that he's not evil like that that's the important part (laughs) and what i like is i mean i i I love this movie i've loved this movie since i first saw it like pretty much around when it came out when all i knew is that it was a bunch of cool people like shouting in an interesting environment (laughs) um and And um, I like that there is that this is a movie that I feel like would have it it would it would be played a lot differently nowadays. There's clearly a um, like a racial component to everything that's going on, but it's allowed (laughs) it's allowed to be more subtextual than it would be nowadays. And I think that it's nice how clever it is with deploying that. Um, Weirdly, I'm I just started watching the third season of True Detective and I found that that show actually in in a lot of the same ways is really good with like the subtle racism that most people are used to especially like in a professional environment or if you have a level of respect that like your title should give you. And so watching this again, I was like, oh, there's a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of that interesting thing. And I just think we're we're more nowadays used to, like, more blatantly evil racist people rather than this kind of veneer of, like, being nice but also still, like, having a sense of entitlement and superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can get into that later. Off the top of my head and in a nutshell way, this movie's fantastic. It looks, it looks so good. It's... Like, just a bunch of people sweating by light-up boards, trying to do their job. There's so much crackling tension. And this... I don't know what it is about submarines. I, um... They're a great stage for action. Which is weird, because, like, rarely do you get the action on the sub. It's, um... A very strange situation where a submarine is a very powerful and fearful machine... But it is also so vulnerable in so many ways. It's it's yep. not like a plane that can peel off and gun it. It's hmm. it's a hulking, slow device that is blind and has to use sound, but then also can have sound used against it. You um, it's it's so hard to describe like what makes a submarine an inherently interesting device for a movie also you know like like michael was saying you know everyone has to work together 
to make this thing work. It's not like on a battlefield where you're a team, but you still have a certain amount of and like a autonomy. You know, you can decide whether mm-hmm. to crouch behind something or to charge. Sure. And um, in this, everyone has their own specified thing. You know, we we joked earlier, but like, yeah, like the people on the bridge are like calling to the people in sonar, the people in weapons, like, and there is such a chain of command that has to be followed. And it's, it's just like the perfect environment for a lot of like tension and uncertainty and like anger. Egos. <laughs> yeah. Like the egos like clash like crazy. Like there's so much that could be done. And this movie it's kind of funny because like we talk about Tony Scott and when you think of Tony Scott, you're like, okay, Top Gun. Clearly we all think of unstoppable now. Um, you know, man on fire, like things like that. Like there are these propulsive movies with lots of like helicopter shots or like the planes flying around. There's so much action. And in this movie, he has to crank everything down to fit inside of this, this tube underwater. And he's still so good at amping up that tension And I think that this is a movie that kind of proves our thesis from Unstoppable, which is his, like, obsessive attention to detail and giving people lives and personalities, like, really pays off. Mm -hmm. And so, Which which is why, like, that Vigo uh, betrayal feels so, like, it, it just, it's such a gut shot. It's like, wow, what a fucking asshole. Like, you were at his kid's birthday party and you betrayed him? Yeah, you know, and 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 at the same time, you can understand because, you know, he was under an immense amount of pressure there. He was getting peer pressured to no end by people that clearly, you know, were trying to lead a mutiny there. And yeah, no, like that, that fall from grace for Vigo is such an interesting like snapshot of this film because because it does so much work ahead of time to kind of lay that groundwork and and he's just the guy that like pushes the button basically but he plays a significant role because without his code they can't push the button that then makes everything go boom so it's like well i gotta get this guy on board but yeah like i i love i love that they spend so much time on that background it's a it's a game of chess. It's like there's so much going on. It's it's a it's almost like Game of Thrones, just in the level of like, okay, who do we need to win? Like, who do we have to get on our side? Like, how do we depose the person in charge? You know, there's like two to three different mutinies in this movie. Sure. It's it's uh it's crazy, and I, the fact that this movie like there there was a time in the '90s where we were like, okay, so the Soviet Union's gone. So what do we do? It's like, well, you know, the Soviet <laughs> Union's gone, but Russia's still a fucking mess. And it's like, oh, that's right. We can just say that, like, you know, Chechnyan Rebels. radical, you know, right wing people in the government. We'll just say there's like a civil war and some bad guys about to get in charge. Like we did this in this movie. We basically did the same thing in Air Force One, where it's just like, what if there was like a bad Russian who could make all of Russia bad? Mm-hmm. And this movie deploys it really well by not having that be entirely the point. It's um, it's just the fuse that like lights the the powder keg that is all of this 
all of this stuff, all of these people. And what I find interesting in uh, doing some research for this, I found that this story is loosely based off of a real-life event that happened. Is um, this the one off of the coast of Florida? It was uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, yes, mm. yes. I I heard, uh, I think it was a podcast or it was a long read. I can't remember what it was, but one or the other. And yeah, I, I, I think I know exactly which story you're going to talk about. But it, there was a communications breakdown where basically a a officer that had been long serving, had nerves of steel, decided to wait a little bit longer than he was necessarily had to. And yeah, you, you can, you can tell the story cause it's a little bit more fresh. It's um, so what it is, is there was uh, a Soviet submarine, uh, B 59 during the Cuban missile crisis. And this submarine, it, it was, uh, they basically the Soviets, <laughs> Bill, this would have actually helped if you'd watched The Hunt for Red October. Um, <laughs> so B-59 um, is is hanging out. And what happens is they are being depth charged, I guess is the way to put it. And um, they've got nuclear-tipped torpedoes. And so they were too deep to monitor any radio traffic. But they know that if they're getting attacked, they're supposed to just launch these 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 nuclear warheads. And so the captain is like, oh, man, the, we're probably already at war. Like, this is what's happened. So we got to launch this torpedo. But the decision to launch has to get actually three officers to say, like, yeah, we need to do it. And so Vasily uh, Archipov like looked at the whole situation was like, no, we can't, we can't do that. Like, we're not going to do it. And so like his obstinance in that, like saved everyone. <laughs> the the funny thing, like a movie like this, you know, you kind of think to yourself, like, there's no way this could happen. But like, there were so many times during the cold war that like, we nearly blew each other all up. <laughs> um, in fact, mm-hmm. I think it was last year, like the, the Soviet officer who decided not to like launch, a counter assault when like their, their warning system detected what they thought were intercontinental ballistic missiles coming from America, like went off. Mm -hmm. And I think he just died last year. I wish that I'd looked up his name, but basically like sunlight reflecting off of a cloud triggered their like early warning system. And he was the guy who had to give the go ahead order. But like the, the sunlight only like registered as like, I think four intercontinental ballistic missiles and so he's there and he's staring at everyone's like, you know, you got to give the order. You got to give the order. And he's like, there's no way that the Americans would only try to hit us with four missiles. Like, <laughs> it's just it just doesn't make any sense. Like, they would come at us with everything they had if they were going to do this first. And so it's it's interesting to see that in this in a in a more modern context. But like, it really is the type of thing where it's like there are people who like with their fear of, of being annihilated will like strike out first. And then there are people who, you know, there's a reason these protocols exist. Like, and, and Denzel Washington in this movie is like the personification of like the system works. Like you gotta really hang in and, and just assume that everything is going to work. Like, you know, in this movie, he even brings up like we have redundancies. If, If we're supposed to launch and we don't, one of the other submarines will, 
And Gene Hackman's only response is like, for all we know, they're already dead. Like, it's on us. We've got to do it. And it's just not the way to do your life. And so in this movie, as in most Tony Scott movies, the consummate professional prevails. I, I do find it fascinating, though, that final sequence, though, where they are in front of the panel. Mm-hmm. And like that, that scene is a little, um, you know, it, it is the consummate professionals do succeed. And there is, you know, or sorry. Yeah, do succeed. And there is a moment of, you know, mutual respect. But between them but there is also like an acknowledgement that the system isn't perfect and it did fail in in this in this context and i found that really interesting that that was in the film i like i I don't know i am most tony scott films i've seen i mean it's not like bootlicking of you know u.s authority but he is certainly He's generally pretty gung ho about America, even if he doesn't quite have the he doesn't have the arrogance, you know, of a Michael Bay or, or someone like that. But the I, I don't know, even that small conversation at the end felt more subversive politically than I expected. Did did you guys were you guys surprised by that at all? That final sequence? Um, I, I mean. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out what what you're trying to sure. say and what you're trying to mean here because it, it sounds like you're basically saying that that was kind of a yes the uh, our system that we had in place failed you two as as the XO and and the CO as um, individuals yeah. yeah as individuals but on the record our system <laughs> actually worked because you know you tried to mutiny and you tried to go outside of the bounds of what what we were supposed to do and the you know i can't remember any of their names so i'm just going to sure. refer to them as Denzel uh Hunter. Denzel ended up like trying to make sure to confirm because I mean, his point is is very fucking real. It's like if we launch these, it doesn't end here. It's not sure. just like a a hey, we launched them first and then blew you up. It's a hey, we launched first, and if we did this wrong, then they're going to launch all of their missiles as well. So yeah. it's apocalypse. Like, yeah, it's it's apocalypse. Like it, it, nobody's winning here, launch or not launch. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we have to be careful and make sure that what we are doing is counter striking and not just striking first. Right. Um, Yeah. yeah. I just think it's so fascinating that they say you were both right and you were both wrong, Mm -hmm. which 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 is such a you know, it's a it's a thing with some edge to say after you've watched a film like this that does seem to end, you know, somewhat triumphantly. Like Denzel was very much in the right at the end of that movie, but then to have that final sequence, I I, I don't know. Like it, it, it just did surprise me from what I've seen from Scott and a, a certain, I think, I, I think one thing that that this hinges on, and I could be wrong about the protocol, but it seems to suggest that because they received an EAM in between the time that they initially got their confirmation and 
when they were supposed to launch that that was basically saying either this is a double confirmation or it uh, I, I'm trying to remember because it sounds to me like they were basically on what Defcon 2 or or 3 um and they were supposed to wait for the clearance to launch but they seem to already have had it they got I'm like the to... what's the i don't know how drag race works um i was gonna use an analogy <laughs> about like traffic lights during a drag race they basically got like the you know uh ready aim fire so they got the ready aim but they didn't get the fire yet correct mm. And, and so, so and so that EAM in between was basically they got launched upon by by the Kula and they were like, oh, shit. OK, now th- they at least know we are in the water. We have to go ahead and counter strike because more than likely this shit is hitting the fan. And Denzel's basic point is we have to wait for absolute confirmation. We cannot just go and i think that that eam that they got a parcel message for is so critical to understand like the plotting of this film because had they not gotten that eam and had they gotten attacked more than likely they would have ended up just going ahead and and launching their missiles and i don't think denzel would have had much to say because he wouldn't have been able to say we didn't get absolute confirmation because we missed a message Right. See, in my mind, yeah. getting that message is it's like if you're in a room and you're given a cell phone and a gun and they say, we're going to text you when you should load the gun. Um, and then, you know, w- someone's going to knock on the door and we'll text you whether you're supposed to, like, let them in or shoot them. Mm-hmm. And your battery dies, and then you start to hear someone <laughs> knocking on the door, and you're just mm-hmm. like, "Oh shit!" Well, the gun is loaded, but like, mm-hmm. you never heard that you were supposed to shoot them, and yep. so you're just not sure what to do. And so I, it, it's it is one of those things where that final scene when they're before the tribunal, it does it does feel like it's a little. It's a little more. It's a little cynical. Like it's it's it is a little more less like rah rah than Tony Scott usually does. And something that I read on this film is that it um it didn't get the Navy's blessing. Um, really? Yeah. So so <laughs> this is if uh, I tried to look for confirmation to this, I didn't have much time to look for it. But according to Wikipedia, which is usually pretty good on stuff like this because like people don't usually write a bunch of dumb shit on a movies page especially mm-hmm. an old movie N- um, not anymore like like <laughs> let's be clear when i was in college and wikipedia was like still a relative new thing even college professors were like don't use it quit quit using it yeah but if you follow the rabbit you click on the citation that will generally lead you. Unfortunately, we now live in a world where websites oftentimes like after a certain period of time, that citation is no longer active because that website is just gone off the right. face of the earth. So I was able just like, to, oh, shit. so I was able to do like a little bit, but not as much as I would usually like, but this is too cool to like not talk about. So we all know Tony Scott directed top gun and the navy was like oh hell yes like let's do this um (laughs) and and to this day people still join the navy to try to become a naval aviator because of top gun um 
I had a friend who, like, when he found out that he was colorblind, was, like, ruined because all he wanted in life was to become a naval aviator. So, however, because of the way that things go in this movie, um, they were not very happy with it. Apparently, up front, they, like, Tony Scott and them and a couple producers went on an actual, like, you know, nuclear-class submarine and asked a bunch of questions and spoke to the XO and they went on saying that, like, the whole plot of the movie was going to be that a computer was going to launch the the missiles. <laughs> and there is some uncertainty as to whether or not that was a lie that they told so that they could get on the boat before, like, the Navy pulled the plug on them. Or if, like, they went and then saw that that was impossible and then changed everything. But so the Navy... Was like, hey, yeah, we don't know. Like, there's a bunch of mutinies in this. It doesn't portray us in the best light. Like, you know, clearly you've got something going on here, but we can't, we can't like give you equipment or anything. And we're not going to like license you the footage of the submarine going out. <laughs> and so they did some research and found that there was no legal precedent keeping them from filming their own footage of a submarine like diving. And so they just hung out in Pearl Harbor and. Waited for a submarine to leave and then followed it in a helicopter. <laughs> what? And then and then shot it. So that's amazing. So that is the, amazing. The Honolulu Star <laughs> Tribune. Tim Ryan writes, uh, May twelfth, nineteen ninety five. Um, footage of the USS Alabama, the actual Alabama, for the movie Crimson Tide was shot without the military's consent. <laughs> I feel As, like that's a good way to get like a helicopter full of people just shot down. I, I feel I feel like there there's a very real <laughs> chance of that. Like cease and desist, leave our airspace. Like but that's the we thing. Like, will fire upon know, you. I don't know what the rules of engagement and something like that. Are, exactly. But it says exactly. The, the first graph is as the USS Alabama sailed out of Pearl Harbor January 31st, suddenly two boats loomed off to the side of the Trident submarine and a helicopter buzzed overhead. Let's 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 be very real here. This is pre 9/11. Yes. Oh, 100%. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> cuz cuz after 9/11, they would have none of this bullshit. They would the, just be like, "Yeah, you're going to get fired. Like you're you're going to get shot down. I'm sorry." Although no laws were broken, the footage was taken without Navy's cooperation. The Department of Defense earlier had refused to allow Crimson to film any of the ships after disapproving of the storyline. My favorite part, though, is the second graph, which is the type of thing that you always hope that you can write as a journalist. Um, Because so the, the first graph ends... The subs officers tried to make contact with the other vessels, but got no response. When the shooting started, however, the Navy did not respond. Because the shooting was being done by cameras. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> you giveth and you taketh. <laughs> but so that's just, uh, that's super interesting. Because, like, again, you know, Tony Scott was, like, a golden boy with the Navy for the, the movie about naval aviators. But, which, because that was all about, like, just interpersonal conflicts and everything and sure there's like an unnamed enemy that's using migs so it's probably a former soviet republic i guess it would still be a soviet republic back then but this one they were like yeah the fact that it's an active combat situation and you're showing a military officers holding guns on each other i don't think we can do that Mm. but so yeah that's a that's a fun little anecdote (laughs) type of thing you come to a film stage classic review for 
Um, I'm curious if uh, they've now upgraded some of the arsenal inside of the subs to maybe have like stun guns or <laughs> um, beanbag like rounds well, or something thing, like though. that. Because I... like I, I'm just like, guys, 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 y'all got a lot of like automatic weapons and like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I don't know too much about sub warfare, but I know if a bullet goes off inside a submarine, it's probably not a good situation. Like it's not even a if you great kill situation, someone. No. Um, yeah. The, that's that. The thing is, though, those those guns aren't supposed to be used to settle disagreements between the captain no, and the XO. Absolutely, that that's that's for ground combat or anytime you're about to be taken over or situations like that. Yeah, yeah. when you're when you're uh, not submersed, but um, just the same, it's kind of frightening how often like I see guns cocked at each other, and I'm just like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, like. If one of these bullets goes off, like, I don't know what happens to this entire structure, but it seems like it's a, it's a, you know, a house of cards and you're just like blowing on it. It's what, like, what are you doing? I just want to, I want to piggyback off what you said about hearing the guns getting cocked all the time. One of my strongest memories from this movie, aside from like, again, everyone sweating all the time and all the lights and everything, um... And this is one of the things that I find most interesting when we go back and look at movies like this. Like I remember the sound of the guns cocking. Like just the the true visceral like even when they're handing them out. Like I don't know if either of you have ever really handled a firearm, but like sure. uh you know, a gun has like a distinctive like if I if you were to stand two people in front of me, blindfold me, and then have them pass a gun between each other, I could probably to within a reasonable degree of certainty tell you what kind of gun they were passing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, an M1 Grand sounds different than an M16, sounds different than a Moisenagant, sounds different than like a Springfield 1912. But anyway, so like in this movie as a child, I remember like the sound that the guns made. And this movie actually was nominated for three Academy Awards for editing, sound and sound uh, and sound editing. Mm-hmm. And like, wow. that's so, the kind so, of thing that adds so to the So Bohemian Rhapsody? <laughs> I would think that uh, this movie would have beaten Bohemian Rhapsody for editing. We can all hope. We can all hope. (laughs) We were doing so good not talking about awards. Mm. Uh, We we literally have a moratorium on films. Someone in our Slack channel suggested that we have a moratorium on films from... uh, 21st century. Yeah, from the 21st century. Which I, I love that idea, but it's really hard. <laughs> that's hard because like literally everything that's coming out is in the yeah. 21st century, except for that movie that we found like the other time we had one of these episodes. 2024 or whatever. Yeah, that's directed by Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> yeah. The film that you will never see. Yeah. Right. So it's only classic episodes from here on out. Um <laughs> What was I going to say? Anyway, yeah, the the so the sound in this movie is is just incredible. Like it's it's truly great and it adds to the sense of claustrophobia as does the sweating, as does the lighting. This um this movie does a fantastic job of like turning the set into like a legitimate <laughs> pressure cooker. Like yeah. if you were to slap someone inside a pressure cooker and turn it on, they would look the way all <laughs> these people look. And it does a really good job of illustrating, and this is again Tony Scott like hanging hanging out and and just being awesome. 
it does a really good job of illustrating like how little arguments can escalate and become like sure. bad situations. And one of the ways it does that is by, you know, Quentin Tarantino did uncredited punch up work on this. Mm-hmm. And so when you have two junior officers who get into like a legitimate fight over different incarnations of the silver surfer, like it makes sense. <laughs> that's, that's Quentin Tarantino's hand at work. But what's interesting is, you know, there's a point where they're talking and it's like, yeah, these, these are like kids. Like these are, these are barely adults. And this is the type of stuff that will like ignite a fight between them because they're stuck in a tube for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Quentin Tarantino, you know, Tony Scott had directed true romance. So clearly they had a thing. And does anyone remember the fact that like Quentin Tarantino and Denzel Washington had a beef coming out of this film? No. Oh, really? <laughs> No. Okay, I, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd done more research. But um, I so I remembered this, and so I I was like, yeah, everyone remembers this. I'm not going to have to explain this that much. Denzel Washington like hated Quentin Tarantino. Um, and he he had an issue with his films, and uh, specifically his uh, use of a certain racial slur. And they uh, they got into it on the set of this film, and they only really like put that whole beef to bed i think after denzel washington's daughter was in one of uh quentin tarantino's movies what what movie do you know i want to say django unchained the one where he says the n-word a bunch of times like the most (laughs) times yes like i think it is like a guinness world book record for number of utterances of that word (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> most utterances yeah i um so i i because i went looking it up because i was i was reading about this movie today and i was like right quentin tarantino did punch-up work on this oh that's right like denzel washington hated quentin tarantino and like they got into it on this on this set of this movie and it was uh it was it was bad <laughs> i you know i think not to <laughs> Not to lambast uh, Mr. Tarantino, but like I, I do think it is worth. Like, one, we don't know exactly what it is. Although it's funny that there is some weird pop culture stuff in here that could definitely be his uh, his work. But like, I do think it's. You already said how things escalate, but I also just like uh, how much um, Scott hones in on like decision making and like the like it's not only the fact that the plot hinges on taking to or you know waiting to decide on things but even when it comes to the fire in the in the galley and the um the bilge uh the bilge deck like uh, when it comes to closing that stuff i really think that this movie's really smart in that it none of those scenes feel canned like you're getting a sense that they are very uh present and that comes through like you know the the dialogue but it also just comes from a a, a sense of like patience and not wanting to you know just skip through everything like i that's that's i guess what again uh sorry the second time what really stuck out to me again is is just this pacing and the ways that like it's not it's not until the last you know it's not until at least an hour in that our main conflict has really emerged and like 
it really starts affecting everyone. And before that, it's just all all of these little things, as you're saying, as you were saying, Brian. Like, I mean, um, we already mentioned the the drill, but man, if we want to talk about a great dialogue exchange, the whole Hiroshima conversation uh, in the in the first time that all of these men meet each other is just it's fascinating. It's because it's so blunt, but also but also like so clearly written in a way that can like reflect so many different perspectives without you dismissing them. Like that's such a crazy balancing act that so many things just totally fail at. So like, yeah, I, I I just, I just want to make sure to give Scott and, uh, writer, uh, a writer that I super had right in front of me and no longer have in front of me. <laughs> I want to give the credited writer like their due here because this is a this is a pretty incredible balancing act that we you know at various fun at, at various times go back and forth between finding each of these men having reasonable things to say for the most part. <laughs> yeah, and it's important that it has that because a lot of the tension comes from being able to understand both of their sides. And so I think, you know, they, they chose like the best two actors to do this. Like, I, like, I don't think that Denzel Washington could play the like boiling with just the righteous fury of his uncertainty. The way that Gene (laughs) Hackman does, you know, like Gene Hackman turns uncertainty into like a, a virtue for his argument yeah. And Denzel Washington is so good at keeping his head. And I think that, again, a lot of that plays into the kind of like subtle game of like, you know, navigating the inherent racism in like the superstructure that they're in and and being able to see that like you you assume, you know, it's it's 1995. Denzel Washington's character, uh, Hunter, has like come up through everything and has probably had to deal with stuff like this in the past. And he would not have gotten this far if he wasn't able to handle it, which is terrible, but also like that's sort of what makes him the best for this situation is his ability to like bleed his ego out of it. Um, just so that people don't think I was pulling shit out of my ass, uh, about the, the feud <laughs> between Quentin Tarantino. Um, so it was a GQ interview. Okay. Denzel Washington gave, I believe in 2012, Yes, September 18th of 2012. And uh, so he was talking about his oldest daughter, and he says, I see her digging her independence. She doesn't like me talking about it, but she's working with Tarantino. And the interviewer says, on Django Unchained? (laughs) He said, yeah, I could see myself in her. And the interviewer literally says, that's funny she's with Tarantino because you had that feud with him on Crimson Tide (laughs) over what you called his racist dialogue he added to the script. And then... Uh, Washington responded, isn't that interesting how life goes? But I buried that hatchet. I sought him out 10 years ago. I told him, look, I apologize. You just got to let that go. You're going to walk around with that the rest of your life. He seemed relieved. And then here we are 10 years later and my daughter's working with him. Life is something. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's such a weird reaction that, that he, that 
Tarantino was the one that seemed relieved. It's like, of course he would be relieved. We just had an argument about the use of an N-word and I'm a white guy. Like, like, why do you think I would be like – like you think I would just like hold on to that grudge and just be like, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like, no, he's he's clearly understanding of it. It's just that he doesn't necessarily agree with it in terms of like the use of it and things like that. Yeah. But and so it's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's such it's, a weird reaction from Denzel, who's just like, he seemed relieved. I was surprised by that. It's like, what? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Like you're Quentin Tarantino. I, I honestly like. I feel like uh, Denzel Washington is one of the types of people that he would like to work with. Especially if you think about it, like Quentin Tarantino in in 1995. Like, what 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 did he ha- he had definitely um, Reservoir Dogs under his belt and Pulp Fiction. But like you know, he was doing a lot of script doctor work, and like to to, to be in that state. Um, and then have Denzel Washington come at you like that's got to be terrifying like that's sure yeah he yeah. hadn't even done Jackie Brown yet he had done Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction <laughs> and, and then an he did uh, of ER and, and some four and, and, room, four rooms and Natural Born Killers the story of that yeah and you know I mean at this time Denzel is a very powerful person and yeah. that that could have you know very easily gone very poorly for Tarantino in the future, you know? Um, thankfully, this didn't happen during this time period because it probably would have turned into much more of a shitstorm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> I buried the hatchet with Tarantino. Like, I, I sought him out. It's like... <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Tarantino was just fucking like, oh, shit. OK, cool. Yeah, you're going to apologize. Sure, man. Thank sure. God. <laughs> yeah. it's just like, because I, I, I don't know what to say here. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting that like that's that's uh, the type of like um, I, I guess I, I, I knew that they had like fought. I don't think that I, up until today I realized that like the, the hatchet had been buried as, as Denzel Washington said, it's, it's interesting to me that like, that's a conversation that happened. And then that he says Quentin Tarantino looked relieved because like, I don't, I don't know. It just, it's one of those things where you kind of feel like there's a way to like, just be an asshole about that. And so it's interesting that like they had this conversation and Quentin Tarantino was chastened by it. And then it like followed him around for seven years to the point that when Denzel Washington said that it was fine, he like was visibly relieved. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was about the N word. <laughs> like, right. Well, what's interesting is so I've read that it was about the the use of his his language in his other scripts, but then in that the 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 interviewer said about the racist language in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know if that's stuff that got taken out because Denzel Washington didn't want to do it or if it's what's still in here but again like I find the the subtext of like the inherent racism I mean they're on a ship called the Alabama for God's sake and sure. all that yeah. to be like I said another like super interesting level almost in the same way that um, the character in Unstoppable you know, I, I brought up as having um, a kind of like pre Me Too kind of vibe to it. Um, 
Rosario Dawson's character, Connie and unstoppable, how she is like a woman of color and she's fighting against all of these like upper level white guys who don't want to listen to her and don't believe her. And the people who are on her side are like the blue collar schlubs who are like with her towards like an objective of like doing the right thing. And I but, think but even even she has like a wrinkle where when the guy that's like the safety officer is like giving input, she's just like, get the fuck out of here, dude. And it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. like, like, hold on. Think about what he's saying and let's uh, let's figure out if he actually knows what the fuck he's talking about or not before just like dis- dismissing him. Yeah. You know, but I'm sure she deals with a lot of that kind or her character in that film in that film's reality has dealt with a lot of bullshit like that where like people tell her what she should be doing and things like that and she's just got to be like no 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 get away from me get away from me right. it's you know, the difference I need to between like out. a guy who is haughtily mansplaining like we're not going to tank our stock price and a guy who just legitimately has useful information but is entering into such a toxic environment that like she is free cocked to like not listen to him and um this movie has a lot of the same of that it's and it's a, a thing that i hadn't really noticed in tony scott's films until recently like when i was watching unstoppable in order to talk about it and i, I was like i can't just talk about how fucking cool this movie is i've like got to really <laughs> dig into why i find it and why like these movies hold up Sure. When a lot of other mm-hmm. action films, especially like kind of you, you look at them and go, ooh, like, I don't know how I feel about that. Sure, sure. And um, I think that a lot of it comes down to he's like a real meritocracy kind of guy. Hmm. <laughs> he, he likes people who know what they're doing and he likes them overcoming all of the, the power structures and like shitty bureaucracy that can sometimes keep them from being able to do what they're doing well. Mm hmm. And I wonder how much of that is just because he's so good at making movies. Like, I wonder if, like, you know, we always give Brad Bird kind of a a hard time because it's like all of his movies are about misunderstood geniuses who aren't allowed to do what they can. Yeah. (laughs) And that's because... Not necessarily geniuses, but people that just have fucking amazing abilities. Like raw gifts. Yeah. 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 And I I wonder if Tony Scott just, like, worked hard enough and, like, got a level of... um, a level of success early on enough that he's like, is it, wouldn't it be great if everyone in the world was like me? And like, if you were just able to like show what you can do and then people believed you and you did it. <laughs> I, I think it is. I, I am curious. Like, I mean, speaking of past Tony Scott films, I am curious for, for instance, how man on fire would play though. Cause the, the racist elements we're talking about are not, not racist elements, but the ways that racial dynamics are reflected in Unstoppable and in Crimson Tide, like they they are not necessarily explicit to the plot. And like I'm wondering how Man and Fire, if, if unless I'm mistaken, I believe it's is it Mexican? Isn't it like cartel gangsters? Or it's very likely I'm potentially being racist and not it remembering. De- it definitely who the takes bad place guys. in Mexico City, and it is like a collaboration between. I don't even think. I don't even think it's a drug cartel. I think it's just a kidnapping crime family. Okay. Like they make their Let's, money uh, off of kidnapping people, and they're in bed with the police. Yes. Um, and there's, but I think that movie. First of all, that movie would play very differently if it was literally any white person, not Denzel Washington. 
And I think that movie has a lot of, I don't want to say it balances it out because that makes it seem very mercenary, but like it does a very good job of like portraying Mexico City as like a vibrant, inviting place that also happens to have a criminal element. Like there are good, it's, there's no, like, there's no way I'm getting out of the sentence clean. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many good Mexicans in that movie that it's not like, Ooh, you're in Mexico City. Welcome to hell. It's basically Black Hawk Down every day. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's just like they do a really good job. And I think, again, a lot of that is because, you know, you spend, we talked about this in Unstoppable. You spend so much time in the beginning of that movie just like being in this city and you see him like going to a street festival. You see her at her school with the nuns. Like, sure. They live such a full, happy, normal life up until they become targeted by this criminal class that like targets them because they have a, a lot of money and they can they can get that money. Let's yeah. uh let's let's swerve out of any discussion of, I, of those other. I, well, problems. clearly we have to talk about Man on Fire next. <laughs> I wasn't trying to I wasn't trying to pull a hot take or anything. I I just was rather saying that like uh, I, I was just rather trying to point out that like I. Uh, Brian, you, you did want to talk about it, and I think it's absolutely worth talking about it. The racial uh, the racial dynamics in here are are, are really unique, and and as you're saying, like it's as just as you were when I <laughs> that Alabama scene was pretty fucking weird. <laughs> like that plays real weird in 2019. Let me tell you, right? It's like a fine people from the best state in the greatest country on God's green earth. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, uh, when he yells out, they all yell out "Roll Tide," and I yeah. was like, "Oh <laughs> shit!" Like this film has done its research. Like Jesus, like they, they are not being subtle about this at all. Um, but I, I think, but I, I really do, Brian. I think it's an interesting question to to wonder if you know what what that would look like if if it was made right now like if these dynamics which are like <laughs> I, I i was gonna say subtextually but it's it's pretty much text <laughs> like there are a number of things he said that can just be seen as outright racist even if he doesn't mean him that it's more him just undermining him as well, the, the a, whole as a the green whole horse thing but, <laughs> yeah, say, the, the horse the thing horse, sticks out yeah, their literal last interaction, absolutely. But like, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of those things are fascinating, and and it's not like I'm not saying they weren't intended, but it is an odd thing to contrast that in with like you know recent race clashes, and and mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's really bad that the first thing that came to my mind was hidden figures because that's not what I want. <laughs> Because that's the worst possible example I could have for a modern thing of of how it lets down any possible nuance or complexities of those. I I, I just I, I I don't know. I was I was just curious whether you guys had a little bit more thoughts about uh, the race qualities. I know Brian, you said you wanted to talk about it later, so I'm sure you had some stuff to say. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we were we were kind of in it. We got a little sidetracked talking about Man on Fire. Um, <laughs> But I do, I find it, I find it interesting, um, the people on this boat, the, the kind of like overwhelming whiteness of the crew and 
it in a very subtle way, but again, without like without being about that, like that that's kind of my the well, thing. Overwhelming, that I, but but it's not like there's no. I mean, there are definitely. I mean, actually, most of the heroes are minorities for the most part. Oddly, like Rivetti and well, yeah, but he I mean, he's Italian, right? Like that's that's Danny Nucci. Yes, but but the other the other one who he takes to the side is. Hispanic or Latino, right? Um, that's thinking. Vossler, and that is um, the actor is L I L L O. Why am I having so much trouble with that? <laughs> um, his last name is Brancato. Okay. Um, yeah, he was born in Bogota, Colombia. Okay. I, either way, my you were really like, worried that he was Italian, weren't you? No, I just, I just don't. <laughs> Will want to sound like that much of an asshole every episode. But I, I mean, I just, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you make a firm point. Like there, there's, and I think again that you know their youth because they are they are very young men. Also, Steve Zahn is in this movie, which is thing that always like makes me mm-hmm. shake my head. Um, their youth he gets is like killed good too. <laughs> <laughs> he gets he gets a a fucking bolt in the face or something. Like it definitely hits him, oh, and yeah. you see a lot of blood, and you're yeah. just like, oh, that guy's not getting back up. <laughs> Did you guys see Ryan Felipe at any time? I didn't notice him. I noticed some other people in the background, and I can't remember who I noticed specifically, but I remember noticing some other fee- uh, faces. There's a lot of faces in this film uh, because there's a lot of close-ups of them sweating their ass off. (laughs) I was going to say there has to be a point where we just talk about the the literal faces of this movie. Um, But before we do that, just to get back on the race thing. um, Yeah, so like this movie definitely knows that it's doing uh, a take on racism. But again, what I like is that like, like the poster for this movie isn't like you know, everything down here is black and white or like something like that. Like, I don't know what a terrible poster line would be, but it would, you know, it would definitely like play that up, but really it's using that. It's, it's almost like it, it trusts its audience enough to be able to just know (laughs) that that's a problem. No, no way. (laughs) It's, it's an, it's an entire flipping of the script because what you have is the brash, white guy and you have the quote-unquote egghead black guy like who went to harvard who has all of this study behind him Mm -hmm. and you know uh is is very eloquent and very intelligent and keeps his calm you know throughout a lot of these situations and then you have the white guy that's just blowing off at the handle left and right and so it is kind of a flipping of the traditional or more traditional uh racist uh, themes and things like that well they make fun of that that very idea in um 21 Jump Street, when Ice Cube, like, walks up and is immediately yelling at everyone, <laughs> right. and he's like, embrace your stereotype. <laughs> like, he's basically Gene Hackman in this movie. He's... Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, even though you laughed at it, I, I think that it is interesting to look at this movie and then think about how it would play today. I think that it is more of a thing where, like, this movie, just by putting in things like they're on the Alabama. This guy is clearly from Alabama. This is a, you know, black man who he has chosen to be his XO, but there's still going to be that thing there. And we don't have to, 
underline it. We don't have to make it the main thing. We can work our way around it and have it be like the foundation upon what our actual plot is built and end it without ever really like addressing it wholeheartedly. Like that to me is the type of like, like to see that nowadays would just feel almost revolutionary just because everything Mm -hmm. nowadays, like, you know, and it's, it's the world that we live in. Like maybe we got comfortable because of movies like this, that like thought that people would just pick up on it and people like overlooked it and thought that racism was solved. And so now it has to be at the forefront, but like this movie makes it so much about that by having it never get like really confronted. And I find that to be Mm. incredibly interesting. And like you said, the two guys that he kind of like bonds with the most, uh, Rivetti and Vossler, you know, Rivetti is, you know, I guess I I don't want to say this outright, but he's kind of coded as like, you know, maybe like a lower class Italian from New York who like entered the Navy because like, what else was he going to do? And, you know, Vossler's no, I, played. I agree with that. Yeah, Vossler's played by a Colombian actor. And, you know, there's something there to that, to that idea that, like, these are the younger people. Like, these are the people who are going to be on Denzel Washington's side because there is a kind of kinship where it's like there's the entrenched, crusty, like, superior white guys above them. And these, again, mm-hmm. are the Tony Scott heroes of, like, the people who want to do a good job and are not so wrapped up in their ego that they can't, like, see where they're wrong. Well, I mean, even uh, – I can't remember what his role is, but he's he's the one – Cobb. He's the one that basically relieves Gene Hackman of his duty at first. Yeah. And, and that whole dynamic is so interesting because mm-hmm. he's definitely a Gene Hackman, like, like you know, lackey. In a lot of ways. In fact, he's even there during that interview with the uh, when Hackman first meets uh, Denzel. And so, like, you know, those two go way, way back. And even still, when when um, Denzel is like thanking him and he's like, don't thank me, like, fuck you. Um, Yeah, I didn't want to have to do that. But regulations is regulations and so i did it and so there's there's like a begrudging respect there that's so interesting about like just having someone that's just right enough to where you go along with them because they're right it's not because they made a good point or something like that it's like no my regulations tells me that when the commanding officer tries to relieve the duty of the XO and basically say that, you know, you have to follow my orders. That's a breakdown in, in the chain, chain of command, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting things at, at play there, but um, kind of touching on what, what y'all are kind of uh, mentioning is this idea that racism isn't being touched on, but it is kind of, in in the subtext and i think what's interesting about this is i mentioned it earlier but it's the egghead thing it's the he's never seen combat thing it's the it's all of these other things that they give uh gene hackman ammunition to not have to say it's because you're black and i think you're an idiot it's because he's an egghead 
and it's because you've never seen combat and it's because of all of these other things and so in a way he doesn't have to say i don't respect you because you're black he just has to say all of these other things that gives him ammunition that feel righteous in the moment and things like that and yet underlying a lot of that is smartly the racist racial tension there right yeah exactly yeah that that's a really good point like if it was uh if if it was a white person who was uh had hunter's job you know he might he might give him a little more you know a little space even if he had no like uh practical experience or anything but he is able to marshal all of these excuses that allow him to be superior without like acknowledging why he is um I was looking for a quote in this movie on the IMDb page, and I found uh, this. This helps Michael's thing about you know the people who are helping him. And uh, Rivetti is at some point called a guinea. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is that that does come up, like those. those oh, is 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 that is that the guy? Is that the guy that's uh, with the shotgun? Radio. No, I, I, I was no Rivetti. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Rivetti is the one that uh, was in the. I'm 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 even forgetting what Rivetti is, but I know he was down in the mess, uh, in the mess hall, and that's this where might they help had... you. Rivetti is played by the person uh, who played uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's friend in Titanic, <laughs> Danny Nucci. That doesn't help me at all. That doesn't help but, you at all. Um, I'm no. going to America. <laughs> oh, oh no! Fabrizio. Ouch. Oh, uh, James Cameron. This was right before oh, Titanic. <laughs> that was Bless you, James role. Um, he doesn't yeah, have uh, good luck at sea, Danny Nucci. <laughs> Do not follow him out, or or always have your leg vest ready to go. Um, <clears throat> no, what, what I was going to say was, um, I think he's called that name by uh the guy that he's basically fighting with the whole time yes right the silver yeah. guy yeah and um what was i gonna say i do want to i do want to talk about faces this movie is fantastic at casting people with faces because again <laughs> it's in it's in a it's in an enclosed environment there's a lot of intense staring there's so many people and like, you know, that it's going to be dimly lit. So they cast some of the most distinctive looking people. I mean, you got Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. Fine, fine, fine. Then you but have let's, Zimmer. Let's, let's, no, 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 no. Let's, let's be real fucking honest here. It's, it's Vigo that is the star of the show, whether it's his sunken cheeks or whether cigarettes. it's his chin or yeah, the cigarettes, like, Oh man, this film is just putting Vigo on blast and it's it's beautiful. It's yeah, fucking great. Like he's got he's got a great movie star face and then you hit it with that red light mm-hmm. and it's just like, "Oh jeez." Cuz he's standing in front of that red light. Like I was actually I was really struck because I've seen a few uh, submarine films and I don't know if it's if it's Battlestar Galactica that's really kind of peppered me with this but I'm I'm used to when battle stations are like raised that everything turns into like this this red and um 
I think that's that's carrying over from Battlestar, but I think that's also in a lot of other sub movies. Um, and I was struck by how often I didn't actually see red in this film. I saw a lot of green uh, over at the sonar deck, and then I saw a lot of like pale, like yellow, and then like it was only in certain sequences and certain. Uh, areas that like the red really comes through and the red is definitely over by Vigo station. Like he's just like staring at this monitor that's red. <laughs> and I love the, uh, the 90, the mid nineties effect of like a computer screen will like project its stuff on someone's face. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my favorite is Jurassic park. That's my favorite <laughs> when it yes. goes on the oh, Raptor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, so yeah, Viggo Mortensen got a great face. He's really good in this movie. But I, I specifically, I love Zimmer, who is played by Matt Craven. Yeah, he's got a who is, who is Zimmer? ass face. R- r- remind me who Zimmer is. He's the second in command for Hackman. I would say. Is he the guy with glasses? Yes, he is glasses yes. guy. Well, 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 actually, actually, the black guy has glasses too, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But he's he's the white guy. Uh, white guy with, with glasses. glasses. He's the guy. Yeah, okay. he, um, he's talking to Weps, and he's the one who's like, "There's only two sides to a mutiny." Yeah. Yep. Yep. The whole fucking yep. oh oh. He also has the greatest. Well, the greatest. He has the greatest line in the movie because you don't put on a condom until you're gonna fuck. <laughs> when he's talking about fueling <laughs> up the nuclear missiles. Wait, maybe Tarantino did. <laughs> where there's the horse thing and then yeah that line there yeah that that line definitely yeah you don't put a condom if if you're not gonna fuck is definitely like yeah that's a that's a great a like tarantino kind of curse word like machination i could see michael madsen so easily saying that (laughs) he wouldn't say it with the fury of matt craven though Mad, yeah, Madsen would just be like, oh, you know, you don't, you're not gonna put on a condom unless you're gonna fuck. <laughs> that was my Michael Madsen impression. I'll be here all week. <laughs> I also like how Ganofini's character is like I've only ever heard is Doherty, Doherty, and it's Dorgid, it's like Dogerty. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> like Doherty, the H isn't is it? Si- no, it's like the H is silent unless I was having <laughs> losing my mind during the movie it is not pronounced doherty <laughs> dear god i have no idea what that is i don't know michael's having some issues with the yeah. james ginolfini's name he he does get to do some some great sneers in here though yeah he you does. know it's interesting <laughs> to think of gandolfini in a time before the sopranos you know it really is and it's honestly like there's so many people like that in this movie. Like this is such an early sure. movie for a lot of people like Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like even Denzel Washington, like this is still slightly an early movie. Like I think that um, he he'd clearly been like knocking it out of the park everywhere he goes. Um, you know, this is the same year as Devil in a Blue Dress. Am I right about that? Yeah. Uh, sure. Crimson Tide is 95. It's the same yes. year as Virtuosity and Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, you know, he'd been in the Pelican Brief. He'd been in Philadelphia. He'd been in Malcolm X. Like, you know, those are all things that he's remembered for. And, like, rightly so. Like, he's, he's honestly one of these guys who's been so good so long 
that it's kind of hard to even think about like was there a before for him like sure. it's it's so difficult because this like you know virtuosity was not great but like you know crimson tide was right before that and then devil in a blue dress and then courage under fire like these are movies of his that like just <laughs> knock it out of the park all the time yeah like glory what is his biggest hit what is his biggest hit that's a good question i John literally have no idea <laughs> It's got to be something fucking weird. And you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know what? I probably like going to say, could it be the equalizer? It, it, it might be like one of those action films. Yeah. <laughs> Talk quietly amongst yourself and let me look up Denzel Washington <laughs> on Box Office Mojo. There you go. Box Office Mojo. What a what a great plug. Like, what a fucking website, man. <laughs> so, um, according to this, Lifetime Gross. Uh, Training day. At $130 million, American Gangster. Oh, okay. But you know what the um, issue with this is? I don't think that this is adjusted for inflation. <gasps> the Pelican Brief is $100 million. <laughs> really yeah remember back when a movie okay. like the pelican brief made a hundred million dollars okay well, but it, is, this, is this domestic as well uh this is it says lifetime gross i assume it's domestic in all honesty yeah because that, that's the unfortunate thing about box office mojo is y- you have to like do some weird voodoo to unlock like a lot of the numbers in like full. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, uh, yeah, but like, I want to see like the actual gross and they're like domestic. And you're like, no, 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 the actual gross domestic. And you're just like, damn it. So adjusted. <laughs> okay. So, so here it is. Uh, this has become a Denzel Washington podcast. American gangster is the raw number highest one. That is 130 million. However, adjusted for inflation. Number one is the Pelican Brief. <laughs> wow. Number two is Remember the Titans. Number three, Crimson okay. Tide. See, that's the other thing about Denzel is I wonder how many of his films are rated R. Like just the frequency of his movies happen to be rated R. Unstoppable was definitely PG-13. Uh, this movie, I think, says too many curse words to... It's, it's R. It says fuck a lot. <laughs> it's R? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. okay. So um, all the Spike movies, like yeah, he's, he's done a lot of R-rated films. Yeah, yeah, and all of his action films are definitely rated R. Like Equalizer is definitely violent. I haven't even seen Equalizer, and I can just tell you, it's it's got to be violent. Magnificent um, Seven is somehow PG thirteen. Yeah, that's I one definitely of those remember a Gatling gun at the end of that movie. <laughs> yeah, that that movie is wild. Um, yeah. So he 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 is not trying to make a lot of money, which is so interesting because he's such a superstar. I guess after after a certain time period, you start commanding more money up front. And so he doesn't have to worry about like what the box office actually makes, because I've never thought of Denzel Washington as a as an actor that like struggles so I imagine that the dude is uh, pretty well off because he just commands a high paycheck. Well, I mean, he's he's in one of those, I guess, like you would call it like a cherished position in Hollywood where he's got he's got his awards, you know, his, his statesman. 
Yeah, he's like an elder statesman. But like, you know, he he's able to do like a Tony Scott action movie, like uh, Unstoppable sure. or Crimson Tide. But then he's also able to do like a Liam Neeson action movie, like Safe House or Two Guns or The Equalizer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he, something like Flight as well. <laughs> right. Like he gets to do what he wants to do. And he could sure. probably get a movie made just with his involvement. I Absolutely. Mean, they made Fences, for God's sake. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And he is, I mean, like, you know, all joking aside, we basically turned this into a Denzel Washington retrospective for a little bit (laughs) in order to, in order to get, you know, some, some, uh, some of these banked. And it's, it is, I think, um, it's a testament to what he brings to the movies that he's in that like you hear it's a Denzel Washington movie and you're like, yeah, I want to see that. Like, and if it's something you haven't seen, you're like, how could I have missed that? It's got Denzel Washington in it. Like. And every movie that we've done with him, he has been an, a very different character. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've ever had like a single bad thing to say about him or like a single false note that he's hit. Like he, in all these movies, uh, two of which apparently take place or <laughs> were, were released in the same year, um, moving over the course of like 15 years, like he's just still so solid and he's still so invested. And it's not like, you know, it's easy to look at something like unstoppable and to think like, well, yeah, he's slumming it. Like this is, you know, he just wants to get some money out of this. Like he's bringing the same heat to Crimson Tide that he did to unstoppable. And even though they're very different performances, even in unstoppable and uh, devil in the blue dress, like he's, he's still got the same kind of, cool calm and collected just consummate professional energy that that makes him like an attractive but not quite showy movie star he doesn't have to do tom cruise thing where we're like oh i wonder how he's gonna almost kill himself this time you just want to see what he's gonna do with the role and that's your long way of saying that virtuosity is our next movie (laughs) we'll be talking about virtuosity that's the one that's the one with russell crowe right I have no idea. Because they were two. Uh, there's Johnny. Yeah, it is. Johnny Mnemonic is like the crazy Keanu Reeves one. Yes. Have you seen Virtuosity? It's nuts. <laughs> no, I was actually going to say for something very different. Uh, I've never seen as much to do about nothing. Yeah, me neither. But maybe <laughs> maybe we should. You know what? No, we're not going to take a break from Denzel. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> We're just going to, because uh, Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period, is no longer being recorded. We're just going to take up the mantle. <laughs> just three white guys. Three white guys. Oh. <laughs> Nothing problematic about that. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> uh, so do we have any, any final thoughts on uh, the movie Crimson Tide? Uh. I, I do like oh, this is we've kind of talked a lot about this, but I do kind of like that this is a war movie all about pacifism as yeah. the main goal. Like, you know, there are other things that have at least like flirted with that idea. But like ultimately, like you get a bunch of men cheering because they're not shooting a nuclear missile, which is kind yeah. of an amazing scene. And and really kind of unheard of when you think of a lot of 
war movies and how they're staged. I, I, I was definitely struck by when they start cheering. I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> right. Like we're not at war. Like we don't have to do this. And I think that there's a couple of lines in this movie that really underline that sense. Um, and one of them is, uh, I think Gene Hackman says, uh, we're here to protect democracy, not practice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, like, that's a terrifying thing, but, like, it is it is kind of true. Like, you have to create, you know, these vaguely fascistic power structures in order to, like, actually be able to go to war. Um, yeah. Luckily, there are safeguards under that, you know, especially in a nuclear submarine. You have the XO who has to concur. Like, there is a safeguard there. And then there's uh, the, the line that Denzel Washington says about, like, how in a nuclear age, like, the real enemy is war itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, that's I, thought, the- I thought like like that that reminds me of even today where like y- y- you start thinking about like the war on terror and things like that. And it's like, are we are, are we at war with a certain nation state or are we at war with an ideal? And it's like, no, you're at war with an ideal, which is so fucking scary because we have these gigantic weapons and it's like can we just bomb them all and it's like no well that's, that's like not the, gonna work not to not to get too political but uh, oh that, boy. Was, <laughs> that was one of the scariest dumbest things when like trump was getting his first security briefings and this is so many scandals and like nonsensical things that happen to go does anybody remember when like someone came out of a trump security meeting and said Every time that we brought up an issue, he said, why don't we just bomb them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, right. Yeah. So uh, Palestine and Israel are like, well, so why haven't we just used nukes on these people? Right, right, right. Like, um, Somalia. <laughs> nukes? No? Okay. <laughs> the Sudan. I hear that's a problem. Nukes? It's a third world country. <laughs> they need food. <laughs> it's, uh, it was one Can of Can we those deliver things. it in a bomb? It's... <laughs> Yeah, no, that was a so that's that's your flashback to the first moments of the Trump presidency. I uh, hope you enjoyed Michael Cohen's t- t- whole thing that he did today. Can't even think of the word for when you just sit in front of Congress and answer questions. Testimony. All right, no one's saying no, so I'm going to say testimony. <laughs> no, so it's a testimony, that's yeah, a testimony. Um. So yeah, confirmed, this movie, I mean, confirmed. Michael, you make a very good point. It's it is a war movie wherein the concept of going to war is is the greater danger. Yeah. Um there was another movie that was a little bit like that that I can't remember. Oh, it was uh, The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker is like the war movie where all you want is for the bomb not to explode. I would say Eye in the Sky for a recent one that's it, it's not great, but uh Actually, I think it has Alan Rickman's last ever performance, but it's uh, there's some interesting stuff going on in that one. Oh, by Gavin Hood. Yeah, I I was actually struck by the warfare here and seeing the subs uh, like play Battleship because <laughs> it I found it so interesting that like I mean I. There are a number of famous uh, submarine movies out there, but it always seemed to me like you're fucked if they shoot first. And Mm. this film kind of plays with this idea that I guess some some 
torpedoes don't have like a heat seeking like mechanism to them or that they're like somewhat easy to be fooled. And so I was just struck by like, they're like, Oh shit, we got shot at. Okay. Now let's bank full rudder left and then dive like 800 feet. And you're just like, Whoa, what is going on in this movie? So they are like banking these things. Like it's like, it's some kind of like rocket ship. Well, here's the thing. Submarine warfare, and I'm not going to get into it because I've read too many books. I went through a kick where, like, I read, like, 17 different techno thrillers over the course Mm -hmm. of, like, one summer, and most of them took place on a submarine. So techno thrillers have nothing to do with raves? No. No. No, I haven't heard this. Okay, so... So it like a techno thriller is is like a... a, Like Tom Clancy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's basically, like... Technology, geopolitics, and stuff like that. So, um, submarines are super interesting because, as I said earlier, you're basically blind, and everything that you're doing is sound based. Because, you know, Bill, you talked about like heat seeking stuff. Like that's fine for like an airplane that's in the the sky where the temperature gradient between the jet engine of a plane is markedly different from the atmosphere. But down under the sea where there are like vents and stuff, you could you could end up shooting at the wrong thing. So it's almost all sound. Mm, mm. So you have to be able to be aware of the signatures of what another sub sounds like, which is why like the sonar mm. room is so important. And so you're using sound and so there's passive sonar, which is basically just like listening to the noises of the ocean. And then there's active sonar, which is the ping. Mm-hmm. And now, you send that out. Yeah, you send it out. But then they can hear you pinging. So, like, you have, like, one of those, and then you've got to be able to, like, shoot them immediately. And mm-hmm. the the use of a torpedo, usually what you do is you give it a firing solution, which means that you have someone, like, doing the hard math to figure out where you should shoot next. Mm-hmm. Because you have to assume that the sub that you're listening for is moving. So you try to assume where they're going to be, and then because it's a torpedo with its own little, like, thing whizzing on the back of it, you can't say, like, listen for this sound and go for it. So it goes for a certain amount, then arms at a certain point, and then it can sort of find the other submarine. Huh. And so the, 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 the decoys that a submarine will deploy are usually like canisters of compressed air that will then create enough ruckus to like get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some mm-hmm. thermal imaging that's available, but it's very light. And what, one of the things that you'll see in a lot of movies is when they try to like go below a layer of colder water because that will disrupt the sound and any like possible thermal imaging that people have um magnetom magnetometers i think are also a big thing which is why Mm -hmm. like there's a certain point in almost any sub movie where they're like we have to like go down to the bottom of the ocean to get nearer to the metals that are in the ocean floor and also to avoid any active sonar because we'll blend in with the bottom you know, it, it did strike me that when they take out the the one Akula, um, that Denzel's character doesn't immediately like change depth or direction. That they fire 
and then he's kind of like reloading, making sure. But then as soon as they're like, yeah, cheer. And because they blow the sucker up, they're like, yeah, all right. And I'm like, if, if there is the chance that during like, and exactly what happens, right. They just decided, okay, (laughs) we're going to die. Let's go ahead and blind fire. Um, and that's what they did. And so you kind of had this little gap where they're celebrating and then all of a sudden Sonar picks up the the torpedo and they're having to like maneuver really quick to, to avoid it. I was struck by like, shouldn't there automatically be some kind of defensive maneuvering so you're not just sitting in the water exactly the same area that you were? Like what if there's another sub or what if there's another boat above you or some other situation like that that you're not aware of? And it just kind of seems a little silly to me that they wouldn't have some kind of countermeasure already built into the warfare that they're they're engaging in. Well, I think um, the issue then is that if you if you're under power, you're going to cause more noise, and so people will hear you. Not only that, but then you have to completely redo your firing solution. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be some kind of like numbers game that they play. Sure, um, where like, it's like yeah, it's easier to keep shooting now. <laughs> And deploy countermeasures than it is to like run away, which they'll hear, and then try to once again get in a position where we can fight them. Mm-hmm. Yes. What so a, what a- that's uh that's Brian Rowan who read a bunch of books <laughs> a long time ago, basically giving the basics of submarine warfare. That was great. That was great. But again, Worth that's it. one of those like you you called it like playing Battleship, which like it is. Well, like it's with lives, it's like a chess game. Like you have to know exactly what to do, and that's one of the reasons why. Like a submarine movie like this is usually such a tense thriller because it's like a sniper duel, but like the sniper is a giant, you know, nuclear powered submarine that shoots explosives and has to be manned by like 200 people. Mm-hmm. So it's a, uh, it's like a, it, it's really great. It's a, it's a great, <laughs> we need more of these movies really. Like if there's a genre that I need to resurrect, we all know that I love noir films, heist films, con films, and Westerns. I think and we, we wonder why we're so movie. niche. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I could find a heist on a submarine that also involves a con job that is taking place in the Old West, I'm in for it. I think I mean, there you, is a heist submarine you, thriller. It's called you, Black Sea. Which oh, that's lost. true. <laughs> you, you got you got a little bit of uh, of some heisty stuff and and some sub stuff in uh, Aquaman. Oh, I was going to say U five seven one. No. <laughs> seven one is like a heist. That's the entire reason they're on the sub. And then they're conning other subs know. by pretending to be a U boat. I don't know. I don't know what that movie's about. I don't think I've seen that one. That's a good movie. It's a great movie. Um anyway, our next episode will be on Below, which is a horror <laughs> movie that takes place on a submarine. That's awesome. That is a really good movie. Um I think I think credited screenwriting from uh Darren Aronofsky on that one. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, that's it for Crimson Tide. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to us talk about this wonderful 1995 Tony Scott-directed film starring Denzel Washington. Check it out. Uh, Let us know what you'd like us to talk about next by becoming a patron and commenting in our Slack channel or uh, tweeting at us or, well, yeah, tweeting at us at FilmStageShow, emailing us podcastfilmstage.com. Bonus points if it's another Denzel Washington movie. (laughs) We're always happy to do that. And, of course, don't forget that we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. 
I'm going to take a quick scroll through movie and see if there's any movies about submarines on there. Does not okay. look like it. However, <laughs> there is a movie about dolphins. It's called The Cove. If you want to cry your eyes out, that is currently oh. on there. And um, yeah, a bunch of great films out there. If you sign up for your free 30-day trial now, you can still check out their Sundance Takeover. Not to mention they're currently doing the Berlin Al Takeover as well. And they've got the next installment of their What is an Auteur series with uh, Matthew Almerich. So check it out. Go to mubi.com slash filmstage for your free 30-day trial. So that is it. Another fine episode has come to an end. And this time we're all still sober. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, gentlemen, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me confirming orders and belaying orders on Twitter at CableBFG. You can also find me on that Slack channel. All right. <laughs> Michael Snydell. You can find me releasing the buoy on uh, Twitter at, at Snydo. <laughs> and the wind is going to make a lot of noise. Release the buoy. <laughs> And uh, on uh, Letterboxd, I'm still I'm still watching movies from 2018 for some reason. I need to stop Michael, doing that. Michael, <laughs> grease, grease that fucking winch, man. Grease that winch. Oh, shit. I don't speaking know. Of, speaking of movies from 20, uh, 2018, I, I finally saw Paddington 2. What? You Delightful. Just now saw it? Yeah, I didn't. We, I, I feel like we talked about this at the film stage awards, but also I was kind of drunk. I finally saw it. I made my daughter watch it. She seemed to enjoy it. So I think she is truly, <laughs> she's truly becoming a fine young woman now that she's finally she's two years it. old. She's like two in seven or eight months. Yeah. <laughs> fine young woman. And she'll be three in June. She's got to get on the Paddington train. <laughs> train at Paddington station. Anyway, I, uh, I am Brian J. Rowan. You can find me. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and all the other places by looking for Brian J. Rowan. And, here's, a, um, here's a question. <laughs> here's a question. Shoot. Um, if you have this amount of soldiers sitting outside of a submarine and they all like charge at the submarine at once onto one like landing strip to get into the sub, does that make a whole lot of sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. That opening sequence? Oh, Brian, I'm... <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, we'll be back in your ears this weekend to a more current review, and we hope that you enjoy that as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next time. Begins to play.